The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The Hyundai Santa Fe's features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, standard third-row seating, available dual wireless charging pads. You've got the H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on those dirt trails and kick up some mud. Or the third-row seating gets your whole family in to experience the thrill together. The dual wireless charging pads make sure that no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead cell phone. Think about those adventurous activities you can do, like me taking a ski trip up with the family, maybe going on a camping expedition, anything and everything. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Hey there, it's Gary Parish. It's Thursday, September 16, 2021. Welcome back to the CBS Sports I Own College Basketball Podcast, where we sometimes discuss camel fighting, dodo birds, and Leaky Black. Matt Norlander is here with me, and I suppose we'll start this episode same way we started the last episode, and that's with some Kentucky recruiting news, because on Wednesday night, John Calipari and his staff secured a commitment from five-star prospect Chris Livingston. He's a 6'6 wing, ranked sixth in the class of 2022, according to 24-7 Sports. So UK now has a commitment from the number one overall prospect, Shaden Sharp, the number six overall prospect, Chris Livingston, and the number 17 overall prospect, Sky Clark. That's Sky with two Ys. And the Wildcats are also the perceived leader for the number two overall prospect, Derek Lively, and the number seven overall prospect, Kaysen Wallace. Deadleg, our friend and colleague, Kyle Boone, a.k.a. Strongjaw, has suggested on Twitter that John Calipari is about to secure, you ready for this, the best recruiting class in college basketball history. Are you comfortable taking it that far? Of course I'm not comfortable taking it that far. Get comfortable. Take it that far. I can't get comfortable with that. In history? That's what he said. Strong job. I know. This is per per the rankings and the algorithms and the metrics and all that stuff. I can't go that far, although I'm not I'm not surprised by what's happening here. Parrish has a column uh, up that went up Thursday on CBSSports.com and on your CBS Sports app um, about this very thing. Uh, the Livingston get is obviously a good one. Best in history, I don't know, but... I think the one point you make in the column that's very you know worth reminding people of is Kentucky's coming off of a terrible season. Like one of the five worst in the history of the program, 118 years worth of Kentucky men's basketball. And yet John Calipari has just completely flexed here. Gone from that to recruiting the number one class uh, forthcoming here. You know, I, I know it's not, a major headline, but it's not like, you know, Kentucky hasn't been year after year after year enrolling the number one class. It was Memphis. Weirdly enough, two years ago, it actually was Kentucky, by the way. But the fact that he was able to rebound so quickly, I just, I thought, I think it's notable. What about you? It was definitely notable. And one of the points I make in the column is that when John got the Kentucky job, he immediately started stringing number one ranked recruiting classes. He did it in 2009 you know, basically took the class he was going to get at Memphis and just took it to Kentucky. That was John Wall, DeMarcus Cousins, ended up being Eric Bledsoe as well. That class was ranked number one in the country, and it featured two of the top three prospects in the country. Class of 2010, number one. Class in the country with 
three top 10 prospects class of 2011, number one class in the country with three top six prospects class of 2012, number one class in the country, two top seven prospects, including the number one prospect. And then class of 2013, number one class in America with five top 10 prospects, specifically number two, number five, number six, number nine, and number 10. That hasn't been happening recently. Now, it's not like Kentucky just stopped recruiting. They have still been recruiting strong relative to the rest of the country, but not nearly as strong as it was once recruiting under John Calipari, evidence being that everything I'm about to say is true. Before this class, UK had only um, enrolled the top-ranked recruiting class once in the previous six years. UK had not signed a top-ranked prospect in any of the previous nine classes, and UK only signed multiple top-10 prospects in the same year once in the previous five classes. So was Kentucky still a top-two recruiting class? More often than not, yes. Really, every year except 2021, Kentucky had the first or second uh, ranked recruiting class in America. But in terms of the quality of prospect, it was enrolling. And the number of them annually, it had undeniably dropped off. And I don't know or even believe that that is necessarily what led to last season's disastrous season. I think it was largely pandemic uh, induced, which we've talked about before. But clearly, things had dropped off a little bit, so much so that people had started to wonder, and not just people, but like Kentucky fans. I think for the first time ever in meaningful ways, Kentucky fans started to question John Calipari as the leader of Big Blue Nation because the recruiting wasn't where it once was, and the, the wins weren't where they once were, and they haven't been in the Final Four since 2015. Um, but he has completely flipped it this offseason. First, via the transfer market for this upcoming season's team. They're going to be good uh, among the favorites in the SEC. But this recruiting class, you know, it's probably going to feature the top two prospects in the class of 2022. By the way, John Calvary has never enrolled the top two prospects in the same class, number one and number two. And it's probably going to feature four of the top seven, according to 24-7 Sports. And John Calipari, despite all his recruiting success over the years, has never enrolled four of the top seven in the same class. So from a numbers perspective, like just focus on the numbers next to the names, Mm -hmm. you can make an argument that it's his best recruiting class ever and among the best ever in the history of college basketball. If you wanted to counter that argument, and I think I probably would, you would start it with this. The class just isn't that strong in general. You know, Amani Bates and Jalen Duran were at one point number one and number two in this class. They reclassified to 2021. So, yeah, you're enrolling the number one player in the class as of today, but he wasn't a top two player in the class two months ago. So on and so forth. So is uh, Shaden Sharp and Chris Livingston, you know, is that even the equivalent of R.J. Barrett? You remember him? Of course I do. Yeah, R.J. Barrett, uh, first-team All-American, played at Duke alongside Cam Reddish and Zion Williamson in that uh, 2017-18 season, got past UCF, got knocked out by Michigan State in the Elite Eight that year. Yeah, R.J. Barrett, who could forget him? Who could forget him? That's a Canadian, Canadian star. 
Um, like, so it, would you rather have Shaden? Forget what the numbers are beside the names. Would you rather have Shaden Sharp, Chris Livingston, and Derek Lively, or Zion Williamson, R.J. Barrett, and Cam Reddish, or you know, even De'Aaron Fox, Malik Monk, and Bam Adebayo. So I, I understand the numbers next to the names suggest that this is one of the best recruiting classes in history. I would just argue the class in general, the prospects, you know, all number one prospects aren't the same. And I would argue that at the top of class of 2022, it's a little weaker than a normal high school class. That makes sense. It does. Um yeah, how about this, though? So that 2020 class, which was it, it was ranked number one, that's the class that just had the terrible year. I mean, B.J. Boston, uh, the late Terrence Clark, Isaiah Jackson drafted Devin Askew off to Texas, uh, Lance Ware, Cameron Fletcher. Um, so keep that in mind going forward. And one other quick thing on Livingston. I talked to a couple people earlier in the week. Um, definitely an interesting prospect and a talented one. But I had two coaches uh, bring up this separately and independently, and they thought, uh, is Kentucky going to be the best place for him to go? Because he's like a six 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 seven power wing. And both of them pointed out to me, and I hadn't thought about this. They said, is Kent- Cal's going to have an interesting situation with Livingston this season because if you really go back and look at the players like him who have come through Lexington – there's not a lot of guys like him that have that have fared well in their one and done seasons getting drafted. Alex Poitras was the most prominent comparison. Poitras was undrafted. You know, he was a power wing, um, solid enough college player, highly regarded coming out of high school. Wasn't that good. Here are the power forwards. You know, and this is really what Livingston is like. He's not. A, he's not a three. He's he's more of a four than a three. At least that's yeah, that, what, that's what I would assume. Is he he's a small ball four. Right. So you've got who do you have that's comparable? Kind of PJ Washington. Okay. Good. Good. Okay. That was 2019. And then otherwise, you go down the list, like Jared Vanderbilt. Eh, power forwards. Who else? The next one after that drafted before Julius Randall in 2014. Not the same kind of player. Before that, who is it? Terrence Jones, kind of, but Jones is even a little bit bigger. Point is, um, I had one coach suggest to me, listen, he could probably do well at, at Kentucky, but if I was him, this was not the school that was on his list, he's like, why don't I go and play at Kansas where these kind of players develop and actually improve their chances of getting drafted? It was just an interesting uh, commentary that I didn't pick up on um, with all of this. Now, maybe he's going to, Livingston will, will buck the trend. He's going to be part of a really good class, obviously, and he'll have his opportunities. But the one position where Kentucky under Cal has not really produced a lot of surefire pros, high draft picks, is this specific position that Livingston plays. Power, small ball, four, little bit, uh, you know, undersized to be a traditional four, if you will. And it's just not there over the course of what's, you know, north of 35, 40 NBA picks that Cal's produced over Kentucky. Keep an eye on that next season once we get there. Does it matter to you at all that Cal has said he's going to start playing differently? Like he's going to play more small ball lineups and play, you know, four guards. Now, it might not be four guards, but I think the quote was, if you're going to – um if you're going to be a power forward in a traditional sense on our team, you better have some guard skills. It sounded like 
he was talking specifically about how you make somebody like Chris Livingston fit. Hey, coaches say whatever they want to say in the offseason, and especially in recruiting. Like, I got it. But um, John does seem, if you take him at, at his word, he seems to have suggested don't worry too much about the way we used to play because we ain't playing that way anymore. I take it a little bit. It's almost out of necessity, though. So he's not going to be completely stubborn, and Cal isn't that way anyway in terms of uh, not being willing to adapt. Of course he will. He has changed his style of play drastically over the years. That's right. I mean, there was a time where he was fully committed to dribble drive, and then they just mostly abandoned that um, at some point in the Kentucky years. So he is willing, and Mike Krzyzewski, by the way, exact same way, willing to change style of play based on personnel. Yeah, for sure. I It'll be interesting to see when we get there. And also, before this class obviously winds up playing, what the Kentucky team uh, this upcoming season looks like when we get a preview of what it can be with this group next season. But another good get, and Kentucky's not done, but obviously that was uh, it's kind of been a slow week, which is why we're thrilled to do a mailbag episode with you here. But that's really the biggest headline in college basketball this week in, uh, in the doldrums of September. Well, it seems clear now that you know, regardless of how it ends up, and it looks like it's going to end up with two of the, the the top two prospects for the top seven, at the very least, committing to Kentucky, and that didn't even count Sky Clark. The Wildcats are going to have the number one recruiting class in America. That that seems basically done. Yeah. And so let me ask you this, and then we'll move on to the mailbag. What do you, um, what? How do you explain it other than the obvious? It's John Calipari in Kentucky because people it's undeniable that recruiting had dipped very slightly, but dipped in recent years. He's coming off a historically awful season and has now in this offseason reestablished himself, you know, arguably as the best player getter in the game and is putting together, at least according to the numbers, one of the best recruiting classes he's ever had. The, 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 the possible answers that people throw out is he remade his staff, you know, added Orlando Antigua and Chin Coleman. Um, there's some thought that, and I do think, I'm not saying this is what happened with John. I'm just saying it's easy for me to understand how this could happen. Once you start st- stringing these number one ranked recruiting classes and picking players just as often as you're recruiting them, you can get a little complacent. You can get a little like, yeah, you know, I've got this. You know, I don't need to make this phone call today because I'll make it next week and I'll get it done in the end. And there's always somebody, you know, trying to outwork you. And there's some thought that last season's disappointing results combined with recruiting dipping um, has re-energized him, refocused him, recommitted him. You know, when people start questioning whether you're really the right guy for the job now, not five years ago, but now, and some Kentucky fans were questioning that, I, I think that would refocus you and, and re-energize you and make you uh, determined, more determined than you might have been previously um, to, to show, hold up, I can still do this, watch. So there's that. And then there's also like name, image, and likeness is a reality now, and the possibilities at a place like Kentucky 
are obviously massive. I'm not surprised by this. When Mike Krzyzewski announced that he was going to retire this forthcoming season, the thing I wrote in, in the wake of that was that John Calipari was best positioned to be the guy to kind of be the alpha coach of the sport, face of the sport, and return to a dominance in recruiting, uh, which I detailed in that column back in June. So I'm not surprised by this. This was my expected turn of course for Kentucky and for Cal. I thought that he was going to get back to a spot where Kentucky at worst was getting the number two class every single season and probably was going to get the number one class. And so we see it in the first class that will be after the retirement of K it's going to be Kentucky number one. No one's going to pass Kentucky at this point. They're number one right now and no one can get, there's no crystal ball reading. That's going to have any other team uh, leapfrog them going forward. I think with what Kentucky can offer from an NIL perspective is humongous. So it's a confluence of events. That's all that's that's all of that is happening here. And I don't think you can understate um, the true competitive nature there was between Duke and Kentucky and Cal and Mike Krzyzewski when it came to recruiting elite prospects. Not to say that there wasn't the occasional coach that obviously got in there and got a top three, top five guy. We've seen a lot of that uh, with what USA was able to do with Mobley, getting his dad on staff, and Oklahoma State, obviously, with Cade and his brother. Like, that stuff has happened. But big picture, it's it's really been a, it's been a Duke versus Kentucky thing, and then Penny got onto the scene, and now he's made it even more interesting. But the NIL becoming what it is, and yes, uh, I think a motivated John Calipari is an extremely dangerous John Calipari, and he's been plenty motivated here. And it is, it, for as much as you could say, when Kentucky gets all the five stars, it kind of gets old hat. I get all that, and you can kind of make a parallel comparison like with Alabama every single year. Here we go, here we go, Clemson, yada, yada. Uh, when those programs are still you know, dominating in the recruiting rankings and entering each season with a lot of hype because there's a lot of intrigue because most most people don't know who these players are. They've never seen them play. I, I do think that brings a certain benefit to the sport. So um, that's my long-winded answer to your long-winded question. But uh, I'm glad to see it. And I do think that in the next five years, like, it's, it's borderline mortal lock. Kentucky will have the number one or number two class every single season because, frankly, as an institution, it just has so much to offer to these prospects uh, and is doing so in an even more competitive environment, not just with NIL, but with Overtime Elite and the G League and the NBL and on and on. All right, we'll get to the mailbag next. We took your questions off of Twitter. First, check this out. Are you looking for a new basketball shoe? If so, this is Gary Parrish here to tell you that the New Balance 2-Way V4 features the groundbreaking use of fuel cell technology with fresh foam creating the ultimate combination of rebound and cushioning. Every step feels explosive and dynamic, and the upper construction features a lightweight textile that's supportive and breathable. So whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the 2-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the 2-Way at newbalance.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So Norlander, Deadleg, he text messaged me, I guess it was at some point on Wednesday afternoon. He said, hey, you want to do a mailbag episode? Because people seem to like the last one. I had no idea. I don't pay attention to the numbers as closely as, as you do. But um, your, your understanding is that the mailbag episode that we previously did 
it worked out okay. It did. People, that was uh, thanks to the listeners. I mean, listen, if you guys want to provide us with some uh, some intriguing questions, yes, it was among our most downloaded episodes of the entire off season. Uh, so I will give a shout also to uh, Eric DiBardinas, who has been telling us to do this forever. We finally did it. They kind of know what they're talking about. By the way, I went and scrolled through iTunes. If you want to leave them in iTunes, we will get to them eventually. I would prefer that for sure. We did get them off of Twitter. I even scrolled back like a few months. I was like, I think I asked people to drop some questions a few months ago. Um, and maybe there's one that's like lingering in there. And you know what, you know what, you know what I found Parrish? Hmm. We're not going to answer these, but these are the questions that were waiting for me that have been sitting in the reviews for months. Which coach would you trust most to execute the flying Dutchman offense? Ed Cooley, Mick Cronin, or Mark Turgeon? Thanks for that question, Nick. Another one. The title is premarital sex mailbag question. Okay. What are the Go top- ahead, ask it. I'll answer this one. Ask it. Come on now. We cannot. Earmuffs, Paris. What are the top five positions for premarital oh. sex, and how do, their Ken Palm ra- how do their Ken Palm ratings change once you've completed your nuptials? These are, the qu- these are our listeners. What? I, uh, I, 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 re- I realized a while back that there is nothing cool about an old man talking about sex or position so we'll just pass on that we're gonna scoot right along but i did get a good laugh out of the fact that i was like you know i think i did ask for some mailbag questions and there might be some buried in like february or march so i went and scale i went look there's like five of these like what have we done and there's a whole bunch about like dota i want to be clear i could rank them i have rankings i just feel like expressing them publicly uh, would- yeah no no but i did get a chuckle out of that and that's a little bit of a flashback for our for our listeners but no uh please send us questions they don't need to be about premarital sex though you we can, you can keep those if you want any yourself. premarital sex questions email me directly how about I'll, this? I'll answer them via email but not on the premarital podcast. sex and what was the other one that you claimed to be an expert on like uh like a month and a half two months ago oh extortion Extortion. I am, an, I, am an, yes. I, am a, I am an expert on extortion and premarital sex. I don't know if you want to be emailing Paris questions about extortion and creating some sort of record, digital record. But Yeah, it, that's one of the first things I would teach you about <laughs> extortion is to not, none of it should be handled with text messages or emails. But if you're just like, if you're not actually interested in extorting someone, but you are fascinated by the process of extortion, feel free to email and we'll, we can talk it out. This is and how I know sex questions. I'll handle it. I am too. not an extortion expert proudly because <laughs> I, I recommended that you, you email Parrish all of your extortion related questions. Here we go. All right. Question number one, has your opinion of top prospect signing to attend overtime elite changed your thoughts of the validity of that league. That comes from Inno Carter. Okay. So I threw this one in because I, I happen to, this is going to be a question. We, we do always do our candid coaches series. That's coming out uh, pretty soon here on the site. Um, so there's a question tied to overtime elite and G league and all that stuff. So I've just happened to have been talking with coaches for like two or three weeks about this very thing. My opinion actually has changed. Because the Overtime Elite, according to its website, as of Wednesday when I checked, has 24 players listed. I believe they're even higher than that now. They've gotten more players than I thought they would have gotten, to be honest. And it's not just players of five-star variety, top 20 variety. They're also getting guys of top 25 talent overall. So I think coaches are also, many of them, I say a high majority are Surprised at the inroads that Overtime Elite has made in getting these players, this many players. 
I still don't know if it's going to be something that has long-term success. How it makes money, I have no idea. The competition, I have no idea. This is a professional outfit, and a lot of the high schools that would be worthy of playing against this level of talent are will, will not be allowed to play it because it is a professional team. That's what it is. So, again, in terms of how people, if people ever watch it, and if you can get any kind of consistent scheduling to make it close to legitimate from a presentation standpoint, I've got tons of questions there. But for me right now, I am surprised, if not impressed, by what Overtime Elite has been able to do to bring in all of these players. Last thing I'll say here, GP, is I've also been told by a few people that some some of these numbers that are getting tossed out there are like if if you're hearing you know players sign like a six hundred thousand dollar deal, um, I had two people tell me that's it's really the number isn't that. Uh, these- I, I was told that basically every number you've seen somebody report quote report yeah is wrong. Yeah, I've like been, yeah, with, that's what I've been told. Like yeah. like the 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 t- you know t- top forty prospect who got reportedly two years one point two million dollars. I was telling you, it's just not true. Right. It's just not close to true. Like that report was just dramatically incorrect. And so I don't think the numbers are anywhere close to what you've read. That's what I've been told. But I don't think I've ever really questioned the validity of the league. I've questioned whether, or just wondered whether it'll ever be profitable. And if it's not profitable, is it sustainable? Now, the simple answer to that is it's sustainable as long as the people who are financially backing it, who have incredible resources, it's sustainable as long as they want to sustain it, whether it's profitable or not. But obviously, most businesses that aren't profitable don't hang around for too long. Um, I can tell you this. They're confident that they can be profitable. Maybe not in year one, maybe not in year two, but eventually. They are confident they are building something. But whether it's profitable or not, it is a valid league. It is a real thing that exists that is creating really interesting opportunities for young people. And just like I've said before, if my son were ranked, you know, borderline top 50 in the country in a high school class, and they were offering real money to get him to go to Atlanta and train, um, we would seriously consider that. And that in and of itself makes it a valid league. Whether it'll be profitable long-term, I couldn't begin to tell you. But there's no denying it's valid. I mean, they are enrolling real prospects. Future NBA players are in Atlanta right now. I don't know how many, but certainly some are in Atlanta right now training with Overtime Elite. Yeah, agreed. Um, All right, let me tee you up here. Next steps for Gonzaga. This comes from TD Henry. Next steps for Gonzaga in the wake of Mark Few's arrest for DUI. He asks, Zag's squeaky clean image is essential to their brand. How does the university and program navigate this in a way that respects Few's rights and privacy while protecting the brand? I got a few thoughts on this question, GP. What about you? Um... I don't know, and I don't. I don't mean to diminish the seriousness of a DUI charge, but I don't know that this significantly tarnishes the brand of Gonzaga. Uh, Mark made a mistake. He has already publicly acknowledged that. We assume he'll be punished in some way as this process unfolds. But you know, he he had a few more beers again, presumably than he should have and got behind the wheel of a car. He made a bad decision in a moment. It's a bad decision. That's not unique to him. Um, I, 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 it, it, 
it, it will be a sentence on his Wikipedia page forever. I don't know that it tarnishes the program in any real way. Mark Few is going to be a Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame coach someday. Gonzaga is one of the biggest brands in college basketball right now. And I don't think what happened on Labor Day changes any of that. So a couple things on this. Um, one, there was a report that came out a few days ago that wasn't like widely passed around, but there is a reporter that's, you know, doing their job uh, and, and digging in. Apparently, a uh, few lied to the officer initially uh, about having had alcohol that day. So that's not good. Um, and again, not to make excuses, but that's almost what everybody does. Yeah, I know. I know. But still like you've been pulled over and, 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 and certainly, and then he, he, he resisted on, uh, on some of the procedures that, that go into there. So I, he, he made a misstep obviously with drinking and driving. And then he made more missteps once he got pulled over. He's not the first person to do it. Sometimes, uh, people, uh, there's no excuse for it, but they, they basically freeze up and, and choose more wrong decisions there. Here's what I have been told, um, or at least my reading on the situation, uh, and this isn't from anyone uh, necessarily connected uh, who works at Gonzaga, but have just made some informal calls here. Uh, I think a suspension for few is inevitable. Um, the question becomes, will he be suspended for the Texas game, which I think is the second game of the season? Uh, I think that would send a very strong and proper message um, and I, I, I wonder, you know, this, this is a decision that should be completely out of Mark Few's hands, but we both know how these things can go. And he's the most powerful person at that university. And meanwhile, you've got a new athletic director and a school president, uh, along with the board at the school, probably looking over and seeing what, what kind of message they want to send. You know, is it going to be this kind of deal where he gets suspended in the preseason? Gonzaga, I assume has one or two exhibition games, um, I don't think that would suffice. Uh, what I and I and I and I don't know when the suspension is going to be coming down here. I mean, I would think it's going to be before September's out. Like you want to, you don't want to just let let this linger here. Obviously, um, I do know this: if you suspend Mark Few for the back half of October and the the exhibition games, but not the regular season play, it's just not going to look good. If you suspend him for the Texas game, it actually sends a message that you mean business and this is a serious offense and accepting that punishment would send the positive message. Um, Texas is going to be the most highly ranked team to ever play a game at Gonzaga's campus. It is a huge deal, obviously, but some things are bigger than a basketball game and I, I don't think it would be the worst thing ever if if Gonzaga actually went about it and said, you know what, we're going to sit Mark for two games here or three games and one of those will be the Texas game. Uh, I don't know if it's going that way, but I know that they're talking about it right now trying to figure out what exactly would be the right and most appropriate thing to do. I do know that if you suspend him for only the opener and not the Texas game, while you might have your reasons for doing so, you're going to face rightful backlash over just how seriously you're taking this whole deal. This is one of those where the optics do matter. And I think if you're Gonzaga's administration, you could even honestly explain to Mark, I know you don't want to be suspended, but like we're helping you by suspending you because if he faces no actual punishment within the university and any punishment lower than that, that doesn't rise to missing games and more specifically a meaningful game probably um stops short of what folks are are going to around the country deem appropriate and you can have this one of two ways yeah you can 
miss an exhibition and then we'll come back and but then everybody will scream you got away with drinking a drive this will be something that hangs with you for the rest of the season whereas if you actually do miss real games and and ex- publicly accept the suspension in a positive way you know i don't want to be held to any standard that we wouldn't hold my players to if my players did what i did they would miss meaningful games therefore i'm going to miss meaningful games we have always said nobody is bigger than the program and that includes me there's a way to spin this into a a bad situation into a positive thing if you do that then everybody moves on mark few played paid a real price made a mistake paid a real price apologized accepted the punishment and now everybody moves on if you never experience that punishment it makes it harder for people to just move on and i think probably the best thing for mark and the program is obviously for people to move on and the way to get them to move on is to have a punishment that that seems appropriate reasonable people can disagree on what an appropriate punishment is but let's figure out what we believe it is and then let that be the punishment yeah last thing then we can go to the next question is there's one thing and we got a coach k question coming up here but there's uh one thing that has stuck to duke and coach k a lot in recent years and that was this idea of an indefinite suspension for grayson allen that lasted one game and right. you hear that brought up all the time it was an indefinite <laughs> suspension and he sat for one game after you know a clear horrific pattern of just inexcusable. We don't need to relitigate everything with Grayson Allen. Everyone knows what we're talking about here. But it's that kind of thing where if you send the right message, you take it, you take it on the on the chin right then and there, and then you move on from it. You know, mostly going forward. The Duke Grayson Allen situation is exactly what I'm talking about. Now, every time Duke suspends somebody, and they say it's a it's an indefinite suspension, just tweet it anytime. Duke has announced so-and-so is serving an indefinite suspension. Immediately, the pro- oh, it's one, sounds like one game to me. Oh, it's going to be a <laughs> yes. one game. Why do you want to deal with that? Like, d- yeah. just make whatever the suspension should be, make it that, and be done with it. And I think Gonzaga would be, and, and Mark as well. I know Mark, Mark's competitive. He doesn't want to miss any games. But I think you could very reasonably argue that serving an appropriate punishment is actually beneficial to Mark. I do think it matters, though, from a basketball perspective. Like, if this were to happen last year, Tommy Lloyd's been there forever. Just turn it over to Tommy for 40 minutes or two games or three games right. or whatever. Now, like, you know, you, there's a scenario where you don't have Mark Few on the sideline. You don't have the coach in waiting on the sideline. It's a little bit of a, of a different deal. It doesn't mean that um, there aren't capable of, uh, uh, staff members who could get them through a game or two or three or four or whatever, but it's different in the absence of Tommy Lloyd, I believe. Yeah, I agree. It would be, it would be, I would think it would be Brian Michelson that will coach on the sideline when this happens, but we'll wait and see. All right, next one. What do we got? Who is the next coach to make the final four for the first time? And that question comes from Darren. Who you got? Next coach to make the final four for the first time? Well, I thought. I thought maybe Juwan Howard, but he's been to the Final Four. He's played as in the a Final player, Four. as a player. So I, I, I self-eliminated that as an option. Well, Ju- Juwan Howard is my first answer. I, I figured he would be. That's why I wanted to throw. Well, I threw it out that he's been to the Final Four. So I, I took him out of consideration because he's technically played one. Now, not coached. I get the, I get the, the nature of the question. I'm gonna go 
I tried to look I mean, at technically it. all of these coaches have been to the final four. That's true. Part- <laughs> participated in competition at the final four. Juwan Howard has. So let's get more specific with the question. Which coach will coach in the final four as a head coach for the first time next? There we go. I'm going to go. I wanted to get an answer that I think is going to happen. Not immediately obvious and might be as likely this season as it could be the season after or the season after. So I, I didn't want to directly look at this season. And I think Nate Oates at Alabama is going to be my pick here. Alabama is almost certainly going to be a top 20 team this season, potentially top 10. Bring back Jaden Shackelford, Javon Quinterly. Those are two really important players. Probably will be two of the top 10 players in the SEC. And Oates is coming off of, obviously, a number two seed. Really the best regular season in the history of the program. So I don't know if Bama will ultimately set up best this season. But also with the way they play, I think that the way that Nate Oates coaches and the talent they have there, Alabama's also in a spot where even if they're not the number one or number two seed, if they're in that three or four line, okay, I think that they will have a chance to break through and come out of the region and make a final four in a year where they might not be an overwhelming favorite to come out of that particular region. So Oates and Bama is my guess. I got them making it by 2024 at the latest. My list started with Juwan Howard, and the reason is because I simply went to my top 25 and one and started down the list. And the first team I got to that has a coach who hasn't coached in the final four is Michigan, I believe at number six. And so Juwan Howard's there. Nate Oates, obviously on my list. Another SEC coach, Eric Musselman on my list. Matt Painter. Mm-hmm. Got to be on the list, right? Got some Matt Painter news, by the way. As a possibility. Ooh, what's your Matt Painter news? First of all, I got two things going on right now. My wife texted me. Oh, God. This is unbelievable. This is happening during the podcast. During this podcast. She she's goes, pregnant? No, she's not pregnant. What is How she How dare you? She could be pregnant. There's a raccoon pacing the bat in the back corner of our yard right now. It doesn't appear to have a drunk rabies walk, but it's also paced around twice. Why do I have random animals appearing in my yard when we're doing podcasts? What is happening right now? She just sent me this. Oh my gosh. Anyway, I got a raccoon walking around. It's daytime. Not good. You don't want the raccoons out during the day. Why not? What are they, what's the problem? Rac- they're nocturnal animals. So what's this crazy raccoon doing? Exactly. That's, that's the problem there. When, you, when you're answering this question next, I'm going to go scoot over to the backyard and see if it's still there. Not good. The other painter news, I got a tip from a follower. I confirmed it this morning. It said, hey, listen, thought you might want to know I went to see Dead and Company in Indianapolis, and I saw none other than Matt Painter. I think you're one of the few people who would find that combination of events interesting and had to let you know. Thanks, Will Saul. I do find that interesting. Painter wasn't indeed, was indeed there. Dead and Company. I could see it happening. Good time there. You're not a Dead and Company guy, though, are you? What's it I take? mean, I, I'm familiar. What's it, what's it taking to get you at a Dead and Company show? Mmm. Mmm. Mm. Mushrooms. Oh. Probably. <laughs> I feel, like you could I feel like you could make that happen if you wanted. But anyway, um, Hope Painter enjoyed that Dead & Company show in Indianapolis uh, earlier this week. I do think that he is a really good... Uh, he, I almost went with Painter. I, I, uh, Painter was my number two right behind Nate Oates. Purdue has a very good team this season. Um, and hell, I'm probably not wind up contradicting myself in that I picked Oates for this podcast, but when we have to do like our final four picks in the preseason, I could easily see myself talking myself into picking Purdue to make the 22 final four. What you just said reminded me of something you were talking. We did a thing 
dribble handoff a couple yeah. of days ago about pick a team that's got 50 to one or lower odds to win the national championship that you think could, you know, theoretically maybe do it. Obviously none of us think it's why I'm watching the responses to this. Cause like people are like, there's no way that team's going to win the championship. It's like, we, that's the whole point. <laughs> we, we understand, but we're picking fi- yeah. long shots that yes. could maybe. And so you went with Indiana, which yeah. I think is a perfectly reasonable um, uh, option at 50 to, or, but you said, Trey Jackson Davis is like the only great big in the Big Ten. I or didn't something say like that. that. What did, did you say? Did not say that. I said. Say what you said. He, I said Trey Jackson Davis is probably a top ten player in the country this season, and I think he would be. He would be. Read it. Maybe. Maybe. Okay. I did I'm not about to say read Trace Jackson Davis is the only good big in the Big Ten. That that you league said, is loaded. You said something that made me go what. Um, you go ahead and bring Trace it up. Trace Jackson Davis is one of the few big-time big men in the Big Ten. Yeah, few. You got Kofi, Trace, Hunter. Hunter there's three. Like, there's two. There's two all like maybe three All-American bigs in the Big Ten. <laughs> I still think that's three is few. That's the definition. Got three in, a, in one league? Okay. Saying, yeah. saying Trace Jackson Davis is one of the few big-time big men in the Big Ten is crazy. He's not I, even the best I, big man in the I big might, I might have meant one of the few big time big men in the country. I might have meant that, and it might have just I might have been rolling like few big time big men in the Big Ten, and just liked the way that sounded, and just kind of kept <laughs> rolling with it. Fair enough, because there's really like there's like five really good big men in the Big Ten, but it's I do, like it's loaded. I, it actually is. It's absurdly loaded. But I did go with a blue blood team with, and I think Trace Jackson Davis is even underrated heading into the season. I think he really is like a second team All American at worst. If it works with Mike Woodson, he was my pick. We got a question similar to this, by the way. So that's my uh, answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw it. Other other possible other guys who yes. could go to the final for the first time yes we've said juan howard eric musselman matt painter nate oates um brad underwood potentially i considered him he's got one of the few big time big men in the big 10 brad underwood. he does indeed uh chris holtman i don't know if i'm ready to give him that kind of credit yet you're underrating him still i might be you still underrating chris holtman um mark turgeon who's next Dan Hurley. Uh, Penny Hardaway. Yeah. Penny was my list. If my list was this, I I wondered if you were going to go Penny, but I went Oates. He's got to be on the list. I don't care what you think. Oates one, Painter two, Penny three was my one, two, three in order. Yeah. I mean, he's got to be on the list. Um, Hubert Davis. Potentially. John Shire. Anything's possible. Leonard Hamilton. Of course. Like there's a whole bunch. Like so there's some really good coaches who have never been to a Final Four. I know. It's, it's almost like it's hard to get there. There's some bad ones that have got there, though. How about you name a couple? I'm not going to do that. You sure about that? <laughs> <laughs> you want to name a couple? I don't have any interest in doing out. that. Next question. Fire away. Is it you or me? I don't know. Listen, I had a shared Google Doc with all the questions, and now we're just going playing by the seat of our pants. I'm going to ask it. Who will this, be- this dude shared a Google Doc two months ago and expects me to keep up with it? Are you out of your mind? <laughs> One month ago, we did the August pod. It's, I'm going I'm to have to send it back to you next time in advance. I hope everyone's loving the mailbag, mailbag pod. All right. Who will spoil? I did, some, I did some research on this here. Who will spoil Coach K's retirement tour at Cameron Indoor meeting? Who's going to win? at Duke this season in case final season side bet. How many court rushes will coach K's blue devils experience that comes from bourbons. Goodman. Here's the deal. 
for our uh, most diehard of listeners who are listening to this podcast, like on Thursday afternoon or early Thursday evening, you are listening to this right before the ACC releases its intra-conference, not inter-intra-conference schedule. That's coming out Thursday night at 7 o'clock. But we already know who Duke is playing in terms of conference opponents. We just don't know when as the time of we're taping this podcast. So here are the home and homes for Duke this season. UNC, Wake, Clemson, FSU, Q's, and UVA. Those are the, those are the teams they will play both home and away. Only at Cameron, Georgia Tech, Miami, NC State, and Vatech. Only on the road, BC, The Ville, Notre Dame, and Pittsburgh. And then we got to take into account non-conference stuff. So I'm going to give you mine, and then you give me yours. Here's who I think is, is Court Storm and Duke. This is a road situation. There's only one opportunity in the non-conference, and it's Ohio State. They're going to do it. I got Ohio State beating Duke in the ACC Big Ten. Buckeye storm the floor. Mark Titus gets thrown out of the joint, and it's going to be a big-time deal. Then, if UMass, if UMass Lowell couldn't win at Ohio State, I don't know how you expect them Duke to go uh, do it. That's bingo. And then I got two intra-league home losses for Duke in the final season. I've got Louisville, that being, uh, that being on the road. Louisville, court storm, okay? And then I got Florida State getting it done uh, on its home floor in Tallahassee. Not only that, then you're asking who's going to spoil it at home. I got, th- I got two home losses for Duke this season. I got Florida State sweeping Duke. <laughs> <laughs> you just said Leonard Hamilton's underrated. How dare you? I didn't say Leonard Hamilton's underrated. I said Leonard Hamilton has got a chance to be one of the next coach to make a Final Four for the first time. I think like Leonard seven. Hamilton is appropriately rated. People think he's great, and he is. Fair enough. He's the anti-Chris Holtman. Then I've also got, I've got UNC winning at Duke in the final game of the regular season and Coach K losing to Carolina and Cameron. So those are the losses at Cameron this year. Florida will never let that happen. <laughs> That's I not know. something he's going to allow. Please, that can't nobody, be his deep legacy. nobody remind me about this. This is a September 16th prediction. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to roll with it. You're getting, you're getting way out there with this Do one. Do not remind me about this. I got Florida State and Carolina <laughs> winning at Cameron this year. That's the only home losses for Duke. And then I got road losses at OSU, at FSU. That's a Florida State sweep. The Seminole fans have hated me for years. Let's let's make a truce here, and then I got uh, I got Louisville. What about you? I don't have any idea. Okay. Um, but but, but uh, like I I think Duke will only lose one home game. All right, I'm gonna go with one home game loss. Can you just identify? I, can you just at least entertain a nation and just try and identify what loss that will be? Because anyone can say they're gonna lose one, but the trick of it all is naming that team. Virginia. Uh, okay, I thought you were gonna go Virginia Tech there. It just seems like something Tony Bennett would do. It does seem like something Tony Bennett would do, and I Jedi mind trick myself out of picking UVA, but there's not a that's not a bad choice. Yes. Okay. Next question. If you could change anything in college basketball, what would it be and why? It comes from Garrett. Man. I know actually know what I would change. Okay, you go first, because I saw this question. I was like, this is such a big picture question. It was just too much for me on a Thursday morning. What's your answer? I would make it where high school players can enter the NBA draft. And I know this isn't up to the powers of be the college basketball, but that wasn't the question. It was just like, I can change an aspect of it. And this is what I would change. 
I would make it where high school players can enter the NBA draft at a high school. But if you um, do not enter at a high school, you cannot um, enter the NBA draft again until after your junior year of college or until you're 21 years old. I think the biggest issue facing college basketball is roster turnover. There is no mainstream sport in America where the players come and go as often as these players come and go. You, you, you know, you, it takes us till Jan, middle of January, not us, you and I, but most people, it takes them to middle of January to even realize who's good and who's not. And then by the end of March, they're off to the NBA. It's a real problem with the sport. And if there were a way to create continuity within the sport, like have the faces of the sport be the faces of the sport for multiple years, that would be an incredibly good thing for college basketball. How are you going to reduce the earning potential of a player who goes for college for one year and suddenly becomes really, really awesome and then restrict him from going to the NBA right after that? They do it in baseball. I, 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 I just do it the exact same way. Yeah. Eh, I don't know. My, here's mine. In, in college football, it doesn't matter how awesome you are as a freshman, you can enter the NBA, that's, NFL that's, draft. That's that's true. That's true. One of the great things about basketball is it's it's a bit more uh, allowing of that, with the exception, obviously, of going pro right out of high school, which you can't do in football. Mine, off the top of my head, is I want to get the non-conference to be as good as it possibly can be, as interesting as it possibly can be, as, uh, you know, attention-grabbing as it can possibly be. And so, if we're working in a completely hypothetical world, I am saying that you have to play a minimum of two non-conference road games every single season at the teams of your choice, doesn't matter. Just get them scheduled. And that forces every single team, no matter how big or how small, to go into uh, a non-league environment in an on-campus environment, which is always better than a neutral court environment, and play teams. If that means that Duke wants to go and play Elon on the road, that's freaking amazing. We'd love to see it. That's very much what, like, Carolina this season is going to play at Charleston because Roy Williams had that on the schedule and Hubert Davis is going to inherit that. That's really, really cool and amazing for those small schools. If you don't want to do that, it's going to be, all right, Duke's going to make sure it schedules to play itself uh, against USC on the road or, you know, at Gonzaga. Awesome. You've got big-time programs playing home and homes in the non-conference we love to see it um but my thing that i would change is that is that you know by edict of the selection committee or whomever you have to play a minimum of two non-conference games on the road and it would undeniably improve the sport and its relevance in november and december i got another one can i change more things <laughs> of course i'd cut division one basically in half yeah it would be i wouldn't go that much but i'd cut it down to like 250 if you're going in half we're at 358 yeah, you're getting down to like 100 and, you know. Well, with 32 conferences, I'd be happy to cut at least 10 of those. You basically want to get Division One men's basketball at about the same size, if not slightly bigger, than what current FBS football is, essentially. Slightly bigger. I would, I would, I'll go slightly bigger, but but drastically smaller than it is right now. There's too many teams. So many teams, man. And, and like, you, you got... I mean, it's outrageous. You've got, in theory, 300, nearly 360 teams competing for the same championship. Like, why is Chicago State and Kentucky playing the same level of basketball? Some would, say that's, some would say that's part of the charm of the sport, but I get you. I know. I know. I hear you. <laughs> it's not charming to me. It's ridiculous. <laughs> okay. I hear you. Um, 
All right. Next question. Is it you or me? It's me because you got the last one. Why is Georgetown not getting any? This comes from, we got a double question here. Hoya mentality and then Coach Karam. I got two questions in one. They're both Georgetown related. Give the Hoya some love. Why is Georgetown not getting any respect after winning the Big East tournament despite bringing in a top 20 recruiting class in five-star Aminu Muhammad? Um, Another way of asking this was how much time did the Big East tourney by Pat Ewing. This is from Coach Karam. Is Georgetown ready to compete with Villanova and Xavier? Um, I would say Georgetown's not getting enough respect because it was eighth in the Big East last season and it lost five dudes that averaged more than 10 points a game. Like Donald Carey and Dante Harris both averaged 8.0 points per game last season. They're back. That's it. Everyone else on the roster who played there last season Averaged no more than 2.5 points. Like, Javon Blair, 15 a game, gone. Kudus Wahab has an amazing breakout season and then goes to Maryland, of all places. He averaged 12 and 8 last, 12 and 9 last year. Jamorco Pickett, gone. So, you know, this is great that Georgetown's got a really good class coming in. Ranked 16th according to 247 Sports. Uh, you got Muhammad. You got a, uh, a young man named Ryan Matumbo, which will be pretty cool. Jordan Riley. This, this is great. I think Georgetown is going in the direction it needs to be going, but... That Big East tournament run was something special. GP lauded it on the pod. So did I. It was really, really, really cool to see happen. You know, there were no fans at Madison Square Garden. I don't know if if it was normal times and fans were packing that place, if it would have gone the same way for Georgetown or not. But they got to the tournament and then promptly got destroyed by who? Gary Parrish? The computer. The computer triggers. Colorado. The computer triggers. I forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, you did. They got <laughs> Dude, out. Colorado. Colorado came out and played the best game in the history of the NCAA they, tournament. Georgetown got con- being labeled yeah. the computer trigger. That was con- a hum- that was a humbling experience for me. Got control Z'd by Colorado. <laughs> did Georgetown there? So there's. It's all logical why Georgetown isn't quote getting enough respect here. Yeah, they won the biggest tournament. It was an awesome moment. That was a top ten moment throughout the entire season last season. But they were eighth in the league, and they lost almost all of their production. We'll see what Ewing can do with this talented new class. Would love to have Georgetown more relevant. You know, it's it's kind of similar, even though there's not coaching change happening anytime soon with, with Georgetown, but like with USC and football and what it's going through right now, and Clayton Helton's out, and they're going to try and get in some big time. Like, when USC is good in football, for that side of the coast, it's, it's obviously very, very good for the sport. Same thing with Georgetown. We talked about it on the podcast a couple times last year. I want to see Georgetown good. I want to see him relevant. I want to see him competing top half of the Big East. But there's no real logical reason to project Georgetown to be a top five team in that league heading into the season. If Ewing can really make something with this talent and led by Muhammad, that'll be wonderful, but we got to see it happen. What about your thoughts? I don't know why you would think Georgetown's going to be good. They were 13 and 13 last season, finished 63rd at Ken Palm, even after that run in the Big East tournament, lost their top four scores. And yeah, they enrolled a top 16 recruiting class. That sounds great. This is one of my issues we talked about with the way 24-7 sports ranks classes. Like how they rank players is they get um, their recruiting analysts together and they say, we think Shaden Sharp should be head of Amari Bailey, even though his mother's thick boy. That, that's fine. But the way they rank classes, it, it appears to value quantity over quality. And so Georgetown has, I believe, a five-player class. So it's ranked 16th in the country, but it's one five-star and four sub-115 prospects. There, there's no way that, 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 that I would 
if you laid everybody's recruiting class on the table and said, I can take them, there's no way I would take Georgetown 16th. Like, because I was doing that John Calipari column after Chris Livingston committed, I was going back and looking at every, you know, John Calipari recruiting class, even dating back to his Memphis days. So I ended up going all the way back to 2007. And his Memphis class in 2007 was ranked 41st in the country. It had Derrick Rose in it. You have Derrick Rose in your class. It's not the 41st best class in the country. That's How about wild. This? I, New, uh, Me- New, Me- New Mexico State had the 39th ranked recruiting class that year. Two spots better than Memphis because why? It had seven players. Five of them were three stars. None of them were five stars. Memphis's class had two players. But one of them was Derrick Rose. So you tell me if I'm a basketball coach, I can take New Mexico State's class with five three stars or Memphis's class with Derrick Rose. We're taking Derrick Rose. And I think that's that is what is going on with Georgetown's 16th ranked class in America. They got to it's it's almost with one exception. It's all players ranked outside of the top 100. Um, in their high school class. And that's not the type of class you win with immediately in the Big East. And so you lose your best players from a team that, yes, got hot and won the Big East tournament. Congrats. Hang a banner if you want to. But the team was still just okay. And they lost the best players from that team. And I don't think replaced them with comparable talent ready to win at a high level. So as much as I hate this, because Georgetown is one of the big brands of my childhood. Like Georgetown was among the biggest brands, if not the biggest brand, when I was growing up becoming a college basketball fan. And it'd be awesome if Georgetown were consistently relevant. It'd be awesome if Patrick Ewing got that thing going. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there's nothing on paper that suggests Georgetown's going to be competing for a Big East title this season. You, I don't know how anybody could make that argument. No, that, that argument can't be made. All right, you want to get to this? I may regret throwing this final question in for this episode, but why don't you go ahead and cue it up? Question comes from Alex. Tell the story of stepping on homeless people. You did that. It's not exactly how it happened, but... All right, so... I mean, uh, uh, I'm going to tell it. Okay, but before you start trying to say it's not exactly how it happened, is it true or false, you were standing on a homeless person? Not standing. False. True or false, your, the bottom of your shoe was on top of a homeless person. True. That's stepping on. Not standing. Not standing. <laughs> All right. <You> did. <laughs> All right, Alex. I don't know if you know the story and you want it told again or if you just heard it referenced in passing. Trivia time. What year was this, Parrish? It was the year that the Final Four was in Dallas. Yeah. You don't remember that year? I'm going to go with 2013. 14. 13 was Atlanta. I can't tell you anything. I don't even know where I was that day. All right. So, well, yeah, you do know where you were that day. Dealey Plaza. That's right. Infamous spot where John F. Kennedy was killed in 1963. Assassinated. People like John F. Kennedy aren't killed. They're assassinated. He was assassinated. All right. So... This is, what is the level at which you have to reach before you can be assassinated? I think it, it literally ties to being holding a political office. I, I should run for something then. Are if you, I happen to get murdered, I would like it to be labeled an assassination as opposed to just a homicide. Sounds better. Yeah. Murder an important person in a surprise attack for political or religious reasons. That is the definition of assassination. 
I've either got to run for office or get super religious. Yeah. Maybe I'll do both. I don't know about that one. So this is either after the final four or it's after the title game. That I don't remember. It's one of the two. Actually, I could tell you because I still have one of the photos of you and Borzello looking like a pair of creepers hanging out behind a fence. Picket fence. Yeah. That's where a possible second shooter was. Possible second shooter. You were a pair of second shooters right there. So we're walking around. It's you, me, Borzello, uh, Goodman. I feel like Adam Zagoria was on the periphery in some way. Like he was there, but he was like. I feel like Zach was there too. He was like. Uh, and I feel like he was, was on the grassy knoll. I think he was on the grassy knoll. And I feel like it was after the championship game because it was like super late. We were talking about it on the way back, and it was like we're leaving tomorrow. And yeah. I was like, guys, it's right here. If you guys want to go there, I I had been there before. I I've been kicking it in Dealey Plaza for decades since '63, um, right? But I was happy to go with you guys and watch you experience that. Uh, yeah. So you go, and there's a there's a mark in the road, and you know it's it's it's, it's kind of hard to explain once you go there. It's it's. It's like an actual street that's used every single day. And there's buildings that are used every single day. But it's like, yeah, and that's where the shooting came from and all this stuff. And so you get to a point where um, you're going over by the grassy knoll. And it's dark outside. And we're walking around. And listen, like, there just happened to be a homeless man that was camouflaged into the scenery like it's dark we're talking like 1 45 in the morning probably when this is happening and i'm walking around and i think we like crossed around a tree or like like near that fence or whatever and i just i i trip on something and then i hear i hear an oh and i'm like oh dear god now i feel instant guilt and remorse and i apologize um Goodman might have wet himself in laughter when this happened. Like that might have happened there. Borzello was absolutely losing it. Um, Parrish, I don't. I frankly don't remember what your reaction was, other than you, you had hair then. It was spiked, and yep. you got behind the fence with the second shooter and Borzello. But that's basically what happened. Yes, I inadvertently stepped on a homeless man after UConn won its only national title with Kevin Ollie in 2014, uh, and that's how that happened. Goes without saying, there's nothing funny about stepping on homeless people. We should acknowledge that, make sure it's on the record. Yes. But, but when it happens under these circumstances, it's hard not to laugh. Can we accept both of those things as true? Nothing funny about stepping on a homeless person. But when it happens under these circumstances, well, you're not the one who did it. So, I like, yeah, this is not a point of, you know, pride for me. I don't, I don't find any kind of joy in it. But for whatever reason, like once a year, this this gets brought up again. And it did happen. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bury my past. Like I know what happened. It hasn't happened since. Stepped on zero homeless people since then. Can you're you getting, can you say the same? I I believe I've never stepped on a homeless person. Okay. I think that's true. Certainly don't ever remember stepping on a homeless person. In fairness to you, in fairness to you, maybe don't go to sleep. In a, at, at a major tourist attraction? Yeah, even at that hour. Even at that hour, you know? It's not like Dealey Plaza, Plaza closes at 9.45, and so nobody's going to be... You can walk around Dealey Plaza whenever you want. And part of experiencing that, especially if you were like a, a fan or even a viewer of the movie JFK, Oliver Stone, which like came out when I was in high school, I went and saw it in the theaters, and then I became obsessed with all of the conspiracies tied to... John F. Kennedy's assassination. I can see um, that. 
I'm less obsessed with it now. I think for now, it's, it's possible like Lee Harvey Oswald really did just kill John F. Kennedy. Like it might actually be as simple as that. I don't know. Nobody knows, or at least it's not an accepted fact what happened anywhere. But I was obsessed, read all the books, all the documentaries. And so if you were even close to that, it's like, okay, well, I got to go walk behind the picket fence because that's where they say a second shooter might have been. And if there's a homeless man lying there right by the fence in the dark, it's going to be very easy to step on that person. I don't hold you responsible for your actions that day. I know what I've been knowing you for a long time. I know I know what's in your heart. I know you're not somebody that goes around walking on homeless people. You just happen to step on one one time. It was an unfortunate turn of events there, but I appreciate you very much for that. By the way, as we get out of here, I can't believe you didn't pick this one. I can't believe it. This is we're not going to get too too deep into it, but we got to have a we got to have a moment of silence here. Hmm. Nan Wooden. The great Nan Wooden, daughter of John Wooden, she passed this week, Tuesday morning. 87 natural causes. So, you know, as, as the podcast that embraces John Wooden as the second greatest coach in the history of UCLA men's basketball, um, you know, we were asked, given Nan Wooden's death this week, do you anticipate UCLA beginning the sanding prior to the home opener? I would, I would think so. Hashtag Nan can stay. Nan made it to 87. Um, and listen, for those that really don't appreciate just how good – of a coach John Wooden was and why he is top two all time. As UCLA's press release states at the bottom of it, it said, as UCLA's head coach from 1948 through 1975, John Wooden helped lead the Bruins to 10 NCAA titles in his final 12 seasons. He guided UCLA to the all-time NCAA men's basketball record of 88 consecutive wins spanning four seasons. UCLA recorded consecutive 30-0 seasons in 71-72 and 72-73. The Bruins won 149 of 151 games in Reeves-Nelson Pavilion with Coach Wooden at the helm. He passed away at age, 89, age 99 in 2010. That's a top two all-time coach in UCLA history. Nan Wooden, a moment of silence. Hashtag Nan forever. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Carl Marshall. It's a legend. Shouts to Larnell. Thank you guys and gals for listening once again to the Ion College Basketball Podcast in the middle of the dumbest pandemic of my lifetime. Whoa, boy, do you see this family in Florida? No, but tell them while I go see if this raccoon's back there. Hold on. Go ahead. Inform the listeners. Family in Florida, six different members of the same family just died of COVID. All unvaccinated. All unvaccinated. Six people in the same family. What in the world? What in the world? You wouldn't believe it, Deadly. I, I wouldn't believe it. Raccoon's gone. Uh, Thank God. Hopefully hopefully that's... I better not wake up to a dead raccoon on my yard tomorrow morning. <sighs> You're not subscribed. Please go subscribe anywhere you subscribe to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts. We'd appreciate it. While you're there, please rate it. Review it. Five stars and nice comments. That's all we've ever asked from you. We'll talk to you again real soon. Till then, take care. The time has come for drag queens to save the world. world. RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars is back on Paramount Plus, and for the first time ever, I want you to use your talent for good for a change. (laughs) Eight iconic queens are competing for the charity of their choice. This is how you do drag. Who will slay it forward, win cash for their favorite cause, and a coveted spot in the Drag Race Hall of Fame. RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars. New season streaming May 17th exclusively on Paramount Plus. Go to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Terms apply.